everyone. Uh, welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here today with uh, Jonathan uh, Anomaly. Anomaly, right? Of course. Yeah, John, Jonathan yes. Anomaly. And my, my first question is, is that your real name? It is my real name. And I've told the story many times, but I actually changed my last name when I was a student at Berkeley. I was a philosophy major, studied econ as well. And when I read Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolution, the word anomaly kept coming up. And I had essentially a family name that was itself an Ellis Island name. And I thought, well, this would be cool to just sort of retransform the name and reclaim it in a way that was interesting. And A, nomos means something like without name, without rule. So because the word kept coming up in, in the book I was reading and I was looking for something like a new name, I was like, yeah, why not? Johnny Anomaly. Sounds fun. So, I so your birth name, was it uh, Anmos? No, that's not my birth name. No, no, no. Um, birth name was, was no. irrelevant. Yeah. It, it was um, B-E-R-E-S, which is a corruption of Boris, I think, which is basically, you know, the Boers in South Africa, like Dutch for farmer. Interesting. Yeah. Why, were you, why were you looking for a new name? Is it a personal story? Yeah, a personal story, but also because, like I said, the family name was a corruption. Nobody knew where it came from. We actually did some research later and figured it out. But it was also just for fun. I was a student at Berkeley. And back then, I mean, I really did sort of believe in self-transformation. I mean, my, my own biography is pretty unusual. I went to really bad public schools. I won't get into the details. But um, once I kind of discovered philosophy and my intellectual side, I was not intellectual at all and as a teenager. I really sort of saw it as a transformation. And the name was part of that. So, yeah, it was partly fun, partly a family thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is not. This was not the direction I was expecting to go. I I was joking that that wasn't your birth name. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah it's, it. it's, it's it's too perfect that apparently it is. Yeah, I have I mean, I had a similar story. I was bad in school, and then I developed intellectual interests later. But I never, I never thought to change my name. I used to go by Rich. You know, Richard. I, I became more serious. Yeah, yeah. But no, take it's a it's a big it's a big step. Did your family care? No, they don't care at all. But I do have to say, since you and I are both doctors, we're the wrong kind of doctor, but PhDs, being doctor anomaly or professor anomaly, it's definitely not <laughs> something that um, it probably doesn't look good on your like, uh, when students are looking you up, like, should I take this guy or not? Maybe in philosophy it does, but in general, you don't want to be doctor anomaly. Yeah. I mean, I think if I was running some website and you know, you talk about some sensitive issues and like, I was like, I'd be like, come on, this pen name, this is not believable. Johnny Anomaly, you know, come back with Everyone something. Everyone thinks I, it's a pen name. Yeah. And I wrote under Johnny and I'm like, so my friends call me, but yeah, it's not a pen name at all. It's uh, just fun. Well, anyways, that's, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So, uh, Johnny, I'm your friend. I'll call you that. Um, sure. what's your, uh, so just tell the audience a little bit about your background and, and what you do. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm a professor. Um, took the usual academic route, but in a circuitous way like you did, it sounds like, Richard. And um, yeah, I studied philosophy and economics at Berkeley, moved on to Columbia later after some time off, waiting tables and that sort of thing. Uh, did the PhD in political economy or what we now call PPE, philosophy, politics and economics at Tulane. And I studied under a guy named Jerry Gauss who brought Basically, PPE from Oxford to the U.S. He created programs at Arizona, Duke, UNC, Tulane, Yale. And the idea um, that he had and the idea of PPE, American style, is that, you know, if you're going to think about collective action problems in the broad sense, you better know some game theory. You better be able to sort of um, model and diagram what an equilibrium is, what the game is, what happens when you repeat the game. You should understand a bit about how politics actually works, like public choice theory, the economic approach to politics. 
And then, you know, once you understand, like, is this a collective action problem? What kind of problem is it? What are the possible equilibria? Well, it's going to be a moral or political decision, like which equilibrium we end up at. Like we have to make moral judgments at the end of the day. Yeah, we differ on, you know, which values we endorse, you know, how much you weight equality or authority or sanctity or whatever. But at the end of the day, we are normative creatures, right? We're built in with a kind of moral hardwiring. And um, yeah, there are male-female differences and individual differences. But if you want to talk sensibly about what kind of state we should live under, what the government should do under particular cases, like, I don't know, should they address climate change at all? Should it be cap and trade? Should it be a carbon tax? You'd better know a bit of game theory, a bit of public choice theory, like how does politics actually work given the incentives at play, given the constitution? And then at the end of the day, you got to make moral judgments, like what would be the best, all things considered. So that's PPE. That's what I studied under Jerry at Tulane. And then I made the rounds. I, I taught at all the universities that he the programs he helped found, so um, Duke, UNC, Arizona, et cetera, helped build those programs, build up the student demand, uh, published a textbook in PPE. And then my career took a turn, which is when I started writing about genetic enhancement and getting myself in a little bit of trouble because I use the naughty word eugenics sometimes, although I backed off from that a little bit. Um, but that's when I started applying the, these ideas of PPE to a new issue. And that is, I'll just briefly describe it, but when you think about the kinds of opportunities that parents are going to have to either genetically select children through IVF and pre-implantation genetic testing, or eventually gene editing, basically that is a giant intergenerational collective action problem. Yeah, so when you think about um, the ultimate collective action problem, that is sculpting the genetic endowments of our, our kids, right? It's a kind of global intergenerational collective action problem. So for example, if you live in a state where there's a lot of high IQ people, it's more likely to be not only um, productive in the economic sense, it's going to be wealthier, there's going to be more scientific innovation, probably be a higher trust country. And we get the, that um, data from Garrett Jones and the other people. But you can think about this in terms of the, the choices that individual parents face, right? Like what is desirable for you or for your ch child will partly be dependent on what you think other parents will choose and what you think will make for a kind of good society. Yeah. But so, yeah, let's, let's get into that. Let's get into yeah. the topic of your book, uh, creating, uh, creating future people, uh, the ethics of genetic enhancement. I'd like to go back to the PPE stuff. I think that's interesting, but let's, let's just dive into the topics since you've, Absolutely. Uh, topics since you've already uh, gotten into it. Um, First of all, what, what, what technologies are available and what technologies are going to be available before we talk about what we do with those technologies? Uh, how do you see good parents uh, being able to shape their offspring in the future? Yeah, good question. So a lot of people go straight, at least mentally, they go straight to the idea of gene editing. And of course, that is viable. We know what CRISPR is, and you and I could, could discuss it briefly if you like, but essentially it came from the bacterial immune system. It's a tool bacteria have to disable phage viruses, which have been invading them and parasitizing them for billions of years. So it's a very precise tool that basically allows them to sequence uh, the genome of viruses and then disable particular genes or manipulate the viruses. Well, once we learned how that works, you know, we can engage in a kind of biomimicry almost, right? We just take this beautiful tool that took billions of years to evolve and then just use it, right? And over the last 30 years, we've learned how to do that. And it is true that you can use CRISPR right now to edit embryos. And the first time that was done um, was 2018, famously in China. The problem with CRISPR and with gene editing is that we really just don't know, we being the scientists, not me, 
precisely what every individual gene does. And I'll say really briefly, we can know that a trait is highly heritable with, with actually quite a bit of precision through behavioral genetics, that is through twin studies. You know, take identical twins, fraternal twins, raise them apart, put them in different environments. We can get really nice um, heritability scores from that once you do that many millions of times. But that doesn't mean that we know what individual genes are doing. And it would be pretty dangerous actually to use CRISPR right now, especially on polygenic traits, where the trait is a function of hundreds or thousands of genetic variants. So CRISPR is technically what about, viable. What about, what about single genetic trait? What about uh, diseases caused yes. by a single gene? Can CRISPR be reliable for that? Great question. Um, I think, yes, there are still off-target mutations, but it's getting better and better. So there's something called pr CRISPR prime now, which is a couple of years old. And basically, I think that is more or less safe, although that's a little bit controversial because it does have some risks. But since most of the traits that parents care about, things like intelligence or extroversion or even height, height is actually highly polygenic. Since most of those traits are polygenic, it's not going to be used, I think, for the next whatever, couple of decades. I don't make strong predictions, but I don't think it'll be used for at least a few decades for polygenic traits. It might start being used, I don't know, in 10, 15 years for monogenic traits. You're right about that. Well, what, what, at what point, in the, what point um, in the fertilization of the embryo or the pregnancy can, can you do this? Well, it's when it's an embryo before you implant the embryo, right? Um, okay. So, so you, you, can can't, you, can't, you can't get a diagnosis three months in or something and then, and then change the genes. Well, that's a good question. I mean, you can, because you can also do that with adults. The problem is what you've got with an embryo, as you know, embryonic stem cells start differentiating, right? Into blood and, and bone and that sort of thing. And so you'd have to go in and like edit all of the genes instead of starting at the beginning where you edit basically the entire genome in one hit. So if you just did it at the level okay. of the sperm, the egg, or the embryo before it's implanted, it's just going to be way more efficient. So, but yeah, let's yeah. get into- okay. so that, um, that's great. Like, that's CRISPR, but the main game in town right now, and this is the thing that's really under-discussed, but there's already companies doing it, and it's, it's coming online quickly, and that is embryo selection using polygenic scores. So how does that work? Really uh, briefly, as you probably know, we've, we've had in vitro fertilization since the 70s, and once you do in vitro fertilization, right, you take sperm and egg, and you combine them to create an embryo, and We've already been able to test those for monogenic conditions like Tay-Sachs and Downs and, and parents then, when, since they have to fertilize many embryos and choose which one to implant, of course, you're not going to deliberately implant the one with Tay-Sachs or with Downs. Even people who you know, don't mind having a Downs child who aren't going to abort a Downs child, most do abort actually, but even the ones who don't probably wouldn't deliberately select in favor of Downs if they were selecting prior to implantation. And so they've already been able to do this. Really the new game is since we've got these things called genome-wide association studies, they're a decade or two old, what you can now do is take huge populations of people using like the UK Biobank, 23andMe has their own bank of genetic information. You can basically now sort of figure out which clusters of genes um, are attached to which traits or predict which traits and you can more or less assign what are called polygenic risk scores to these polygenic traits. So what's the chance that this embryo rather than that is going to be, you know, six between six foot two and six foot five versus this other one that's between maybe five, nine and five, 11. And of course you can select sex yeah. that we've, way. We've had Robert Plum and us. I think a lot of our audience. Yeah, exactly. Know, uh, yep. stuff. And that's the main game in town. You can already do that now. And um, it's going to be for increasingly mental traits, not just physical ones, but schizophrenia.
You can't do that now. People do it for downs. I think that's, that's dangerous. Anyone doing this for uh, intelligence or any other trade we care about? Well, lots of the traits we care about, including mental traits. And I know of people who are doing it for intelligence. So if anyone's interested in that, they can contact me. They can, they can email me. So it certainly is possible. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So if people are, uh, are uh, you know, having a baby soon, maybe, yeah, they could, they could reach out to Johnny. Okay, cool. Sure. Um, <laughs> and is, there anything, is there anything else besides CRISPR and uh, uh, embryo, uh, embryo selection? Well, there's the, the most obvious thing, and I don't know if you've talked to Jeffrey Miller or will talk to him, but of course he would emphasize mate selection. So the most powerful tool now and in the, in the near future is just selecting a mate. And in fact, when you think about embryo selection, let's say that you generate 10 embryos right through the IVF process, and a couple of them are probably not going to be viable. Maybe a couple of them you, you chuck out or they use for research because it has you know, Tay-Sachs or Downs or one of these polygenic traits that you don't want, like cancer, high predisposition cancer. So um, essentially, even now with things like IQ or height or something like that, it's going to be strongly limited by the parents. And so the, the most powerful thing you can do now and into the future, um, at least for the next few decades, is select a mate. And then once you have a mate, you're going to get some combination of the traits that you guys have. So, so you'd rather and have a genius wife and do it. Yeah, you'd have to have right. a genius wife and do it naturally than uh, a, uh, a woman wife, with all yeah. kinds of problems and, and then picking the yeah, right. best five out of 10 or 10 embryos or, or whatever. That's right. Maybe. But I mean, as maybe. You know, as you know, and actually, I should, I should add this. This is something that is um, coming on board really soon. So sooner than I thought. When I wrote the book in 2019, and it just came out, uh, I guess, two years ago, I had mentioned a distant possibility that Nick Bostrom talked a lot about. And that's the idea of creating um, pluripotent stem cells from adult cells. So let's take an old man, for example, 80 years old, and um, maybe he's lost his fertility or an older woman is even better, right? Postmenopausal, she can't have a child. Well, not now, but if you take, uh, there's a certain technique, you can take um, a skin cell, a hair cell, and turn it into a pluripotent stem cell, right? Which is basically almost like an embryonic cell. It's the kind that can become anything. Well, once you have that, you can turn that into a sperm or egg, fertilize it, implant it into um, probably not the 80-year-old woman, but implant it into, for example, a surrogate. And that woman could have a number of children if she wanted to, and so, so could a guy. So, But another implication of this is that, remember, when we're doing embryo selection, what traits we get as a function of your mate, so mate choice matters, and then how many embryos you can get. So if you only have two embryos, and you're selecting one of the two, you're not going to get a very big IQ gain. 10 embryos, you'll get a significant IQ gain, maybe like 10 points. But let's say you had a thousand embryos, right? You could mass produce this cheaply. Well, then even if you had two, two low IQ parents, the possibility of having one of them being high IQ embryo is actually pretty high. So you get much more genetic diversity once you employ this technique along with generally IVF and pre-implantation genetic testing. Is this like a, like a cloning? Like a, uh, is this like a thing where, what, what do you do? How, do? how does this work that you get the thou? How do you mass produce them? Well, I don't understand the exact details, but like once you can produce like one sperm or one egg from a cell, I mean, it should be easy enough to produce many of them, right? So I don't know the technical details of that technology, but yeah, you should be able to do. And of course you have trillions of, of, um, you know, skin cells, for example. And so even if you could only get one sperm from one skin cell, which I don't think is true, but even if that was true, well, you could just use billions of skin cells. It'd be really easy. So sperm is, I mean, sperm is not the limiting yeah, factor. Uh, eggs yeah, are eggs are yeah, that, that's, 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 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so in, uh, in your book, I mean, I think one thing I was surprised, I was expecting you to have to actually defend genetic enhancement. Um, and uh, from my, the impression I got was that, well, let, let me, let me go back a bit. Cause there, there was, um, this t- Twitter thread I saw. So a lot of people were saying during COVID that, um, bioethicists are, uh, people who are, you know, whatever medical ethicists, they're stupid people. Why they say, because they all oppose human challenge trials and they all oppose all these, you know, things. And like smart people were saying they're stupid, but then somebody like had a Twitter thread who, who came to try to defend the field. And he said, no, like the people who are like in the media, they're not representative of medical ethicists. Like medical ethicists actually okay. have more sensible okay. views on our topic. And so I read your book and I remember thinking that, okay, I, th- I, I thought this guy would be out on a limb. He'd be the only one interested in genetic enhancement, but I don't know if this is just the, you know, you didn't want to just argue with people. You were just like in a different, you know, you were in different silo in the literature or whatever, but it's uh, my impression was that like everyone thinks genetic enhancement is good. Is, is that right in philosophy or, or is that a mistaken impression? Good. Okay. So I would say two parts here. One the general uh, characterization of bioethics is correct. So most people are highly politically correct. I mean, you are a critic of universities like like I am. It selects for conformity and especially left-wing conformity. That's absolutely what's happened in bioethics. However, there's this core of outliers, and it, maybe it's because they're mostly older in their 50s to 70s, that are pro-enhancement and that aren't too afraid, at least, of saying what they think. Examples are Alan Buchanan, who's in his 70s, uh, Julian Savulescu. I wrote the book while I was in Oxford because I was a guest of Julian Savulescu, and he even wanted to hire me there when other people wouldn't hire me in the United States. I'd never even make a shortlist. Well, that's because you know we're on the same page about the status of these issues. So Julian Savulescu heads up the Center for Practical Ethics at Oxford, and many people there, and by many, I mean five to eight people. It's not hundreds. Um, definitely support genetic enhancement. And then downstairs from Julian is Nick Bostrom at the Future of Humanity Institute. He used to work with Julian on these issues. So you basically, it is true that the mainstream of bioethics is highly left-wing. It's highly conformist and skeptical of genetic enhancement, not for religious reasons, but for left-wing reasons. They're worried about inequalities and things like this. But secondly, there is also a core of, let's just call it 10 to 12 people. Maybe it's a little bit bigger of really smart, interesting, well-published people who are pro-enhancement. And actually, we still have fruitful disagreements, right? Like, I think I'm the first one who, I'm pretty sure I'm the first one who's raised collective action problems, like taking this sort of perspective of game theory and saying, yeah, I'm pro-enhancement too, but there are these various collective action problems we can get into. So it's not enough to just say, like, I want my son to be, like, more morally good or something. It's like, like, what does that mean, actually, right? Let's talk about the dynamics of different psychological dispositions. You don't want your son to be a sucker in a world of self-interested people, but you do want him to be, let's say, generous enough or maybe a little more generous than average. So I tried to introduce those considerations within this overall field that's skeptical of enhancement, but to the subfield that's actually pro-enhancement. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, uh, so that guy who was saying that medical ethicists, well, maybe they're better on human challenge trials. Maybe genetic enhancement is, is different, but you're telling actually, me they are- no, let me- Let me follow up on that. In fact, Julian Savulescu and I at Oxford were the only two bioethicists who we co-authored a paper in defense of challenge trials in 2019, just before COVID. So we basically said, look, you should be allowed to pay anything you want to get challenge trials. And just to clarify, I'm sure your listeners know, but that's the idea of paying people to participate in experimental vaccinations, which could result in your death. But the thing is, 
if you have information about the risks, then you should be allowed to do whatever you want. That's that's my view. Or being in, being infected with COVID, so you, they're giving you COVID. Yeah, uh, absolutely, or something COVID. worse, yeah. something exactly. much worse. And, yeah. And, and how was and how was that? How was a paper like that received? Like well, people like in a department of a uh, philosophy or what a bioethics, whoever, whatever that is. Um, what percentage would have been okay with that argument? What percentage would have been offended? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So. Um, as I said, Julian Savalescu and I wrote a paper defending this uh, just before the pandemic. I think during COVID, more people were receptive to the idea of challenge trials, in part because COVID is not as deadly as some of the past pandemics we've had, and in part because people were just so desperate to reopen our countries, reopen our economies, that I think they were just willing to um, allow things they otherwise wouldn't allow or wouldn't be comfortable allowing. So yeah, during COVID, I think it was reasonably well-received, our paper, although generally speaking, bioethicists are going to shun us. And their main argument is generally that, well, who's likely to take up the offer for challenge trials? It's going to be poor people who on average, they're going to say don't have the relevant information or don't know how to assess the risks. And Julie and I just basically say it's a libertarian position. Um, you know, I'm not really a libertarian exactly, but I take those positions in cases like this. And that is, look, um, just being poor doesn't make you stupid. And so if we have informed advice from doctors and it's clear that, you know, you're smart enough to understand what the risks are, who are we to tell you that, you know, you can't use your body in these ways? So but why, why let the poor have any decisions then? Why let them get yeah. married? Why let them have children? Why let them take jobs? Why let them move? I mean, they just need to be controlled by philosophers, obviously, then. Agree. And actually, Nathan Kaufness has a good paper on this. It's a bit of a troll, um, although maybe he believes it. And it's called Coercive Paternalism and the Intelligence Continuum. What Kaufness argues is like, look, if you take the premises most philosophers accept, then what you should do is sort of say, look, administer IQ tests and then like coercively implement certain policies for people below a certain score and, and don't do that for others. Now, I don't, I don't agree with that. And I don't, I don't know that Kaufness actually does either, but it's taking that view to its logical conclusion. Yeah. So the, um, so when you talk about collective action problems, you're in the book, you're talking about things like, uh, immunity to disease. Um, you're talking about, uh, could you, what do you think? It just, uh, well, I'll let you summarize. What do you think are the most interesting or important collective action problems that arise from genetic engineering or other kinds of, uh, <laughs> enhancement? Yeah, and just to be clear, a collective action problem generally is just any case where there's a group of people and well, you, each don't individual... need, you don't need to explain collective action okay, problem. Okay, Come yeah, on, Johnny. Yeah. We're, we're, we're highbrow. We're a very highbrow podcast. Sounds Our good. Sounds good. Stuff. Yeah, okay. Lots of collective action problems. I mean, one obvious one is immunity, um, like you said. So this is one of the few cases where when people say diversity is our strength, they're right. Like there's just no doubt about that. You want extremely diverse immune systems. And um, I'll just give the 30-second sort of uh, evolutionary biological explanation, which I get from William Hamilton. He's the first one that sort of said, look, sex evolved to solve the problem that parasites evolve quicker than we do, right? Their life cycle is shorter than ours. There's trillions of them. They've outlived us for a long time. And so the problem is they're constantly invading us, right? New versions of, of viruses, bacteria, et cetera. And so what sex does is it creates these radically reorganized immune systems. Our immune systems already are adaptive, and so they can learn new things about new kinds of viruses. I mean, COVID's a good example, right? It didn't exist before. Now it exists. Well, our immune system can handle it. But often that's not true before large numbers of people die when there's like a novel microbe and it can wipe out, like think of the Black Death in Europe, it killed almost half the population, actually over hundreds of years or many waves of it until eventually Europeans evolved better immunity than, say, Native Americans, because they're constantly exposed to it. 
So what does sex do? Well, it allows us to have extremely varied immune systems. And one, one serious problem with genetic enhancement, it doesn't make me like opposed to it in general, but is if we ended up with more genetic similarity than would be optimal from social standpoint. For example, the first enhancement in China, like I said, was the CCR5 gene in China. And that's the gene that when it's knocked out, it basically creates an immunoreaction such that if you have HIV, if you're exposed to it, you won't develop AIDS, right? But it also has other downstream effects that I won't get into. Yeah, you can imagine a case. I mean, this is hypothetical because I don't know of any specific gene like this. Probably your viewers can think of some, but you can at least imagine cases where we all got this sort of, um, quote, enhancement, which is like an improvement relative to where we are now to our immune system. But in the long run, it created actually worse herd immunity from a social standpoint. So in principle, there are lots of cases like that. Um, maybe a better one, like is like a kind of evolutionary arms race case. Females have strong preferences for tall men, as you know, right? You can look at the dating uh, app data and you can imagine like um, people wanting to enhance their children, especially their male children, such that they're taller than average. And if you keep doing that, there's no relative gain. Um, there's maybe a relative gain for an individual, but overall there's going to be some social costs, which is, you know, once you're above, let's say six foot eight, um, there are all kinds of like coronary problems, problems for your joints, et cetera. There's reduced length of life. That's just like, those are two yeah, really but simple. People, I mean, people, would take, people would take that into account. They're like, oh, I can go from six, six to six, eight. I'm going to hurt my joints. I don't think people are going to, are going to, you know, be idiots and, and take every inch that they get. <laughs> they I agree. Get, right? Like actually might as well say this at the beginning. Um, another paper I wrote with Julian Savalescu on this stuff, we advocated something called regulatory parsimony. And so what we argued is again, a kind of, kind of libertarian standpoint. And that is that when you have a collective action problem that's really serious, that involves like genetic enhancements, um, you should endorse regulatory parsimony, which is you should have as few legal rules as possible. You should emphasize social norms and the power they might have to aggregate individual choices, different norms in different states. And um, yeah, that's because like who's most likely to be able to get access to the enhancements that matter? Well, if you make it either illegal or you overregulate, you ensure that only the rich and famous can access these things. And we try to do that, especially to explain that obvious point to like egalitarians who are like, hey, I don't like the inequality that's going to result from this. We should pass a law. And it's like, okay, dude, pass your law, but you know you're going to get more inequality, not less if you do that, right? Uh, like the organ trade in kidney, who in kidneys in India or in Colombia, like who has access to that? Well, it's mostly rich um, Frenchmen or people from Canada or the United States flying down and either you know, legally in some cases buying these or getting organ brokers, in which case, um, you know, they might come from prisoners or children or whoever else. So it, it actually like results in more black market activity and exacerbates inequalities. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to want to ban this stuff, I think is clearly, clearly um, evil. And, you know, we're not, we're not, there, we're not there yet. Um, fortunately, I think in the U S I think you would, I think you would actually, you would need legislation. Um, the, yes. you know, the, 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 you know, these people would be against every, uh, let me, well, actually, let me, let me, let me take a different track. I think the libertarian thing with this, I think it has to be libertarian because I think if you try to, people are scared of this stuff already. If you, if you combine it with anything that looks coercive, I think the political will. So I was surprised by the resistance to uh, vaccine mandates. Like, I, you know, I think vaccines are good. I think you think vaccines are yeah. good. Um, I think vaccines are sort of like the textbook case of like a justified government coercion, right? It's like the textbook case of a collective action problem. And just like the 
craziness, which people want. And then eventually I decided, you know what? It's not the social piece. Like most pe- anybody who wants a vaccine, COVID vaccine can get it. You know, a yeah. few people are like, you know, they're, they're, they're going to hurt others to a certain extent. Um, but you know, the social piece we lose, uh, by trying to like force the entire country to, to vax, I think is way, way too high. And so when I look at genetic engineering or any kind of embryo selection or anything like that, it's going to be like that too. I mean, you're going to make, you're going to have terrible social problems if you try to do anything coercive. And maybe you could point out there's a collective action problem uh, here or there. Um, but I think it has to justify coercion. I think it just has to be a very, very high level. Yeah. And I think, look, the dangers of overregulating it or even banning it exceed whatever benefits there might be. I don't think there are many, but like, let's say you ban it and um, therefore you don't get gains in, in cognition, right? You don't get increased IQ. Well, the opportunity cost of that is pretty damn high, right? So having even one high IQ country, like let's just say Singapore, it's only a few million people. And yet, or, or, or Switzerland, they produce like an outsized number of innovations scientifically, um, you know, obviously they're powerhouses economically. And so, yeah, I mean, you foreclose the opportunity to create more Singapores in Switzerland, which I think, speaking of evil, that's really evil, right? You foreclose the opportunity to become better versions of ourselves, so to speak. Yeah. The, and, you know, and the stuff about the diversity, I mean, the immune system, I think is a, is a special case, yes. but like mental, like we're going to lose mental diversity or phys- people want different. I mean, some people are going to want the best basketball player for their kid and they, they're not yeah. going to care about them stupid book learning and some people are going to want effeminate sons or some people are going to want masculine sons i mean i think you are going to have as much variation probably more variation um cognitively and in the population maybe not an immune system people are not going to want weak immune systems or or whatever um but on almost everything else i think you're going to get wide variation and there's just not a lot to worry about there i think you're right i mean there's one hypothetical example i gave in the paper with savalescu i think it made it way into the book too and that is you know, this is pretty, pretty far off. Like we don't know yet whether this is true, but we do know that, for example, um, people who are predisposed towards schizophrenia tend to have more relatives in creative professions. And there's some reason to believe that a lot of the same genetic variants that contribute to creativity also contribute to schizophrenia. So again, like I'm not too worried about this, but you can imagine in principle, if everyone selected against schizophrenia, which is quite possible right now, it's very easy to do you end up with less creativity in the population. Again, it's very hypothetical. I just wanted to give examples where it could be true. Maybe we'll worry about that in a hundred years if, if we have reason to worry about it, but yeah. 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 And so, yeah. And I mean, on top of it, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a, you know, obviously things aren't hundred percent genetic anyway. So there's, there's an no, you know, environment. No. And so, you know, the, the theoretical maximum of what you can get, you know, is 50% of the variation in IQ yeah, or and, 60 or 70%. Right. Whatever, uh, and to your yeah. point, to your point, Richard, like a lot of actually the audience, you know, people listening should think about this a lot. Don't like they'll, they'll guess like, Hey, this is going to be brave new world. Or it's going to be Gattaca. It's going to be like, there's exactly two classes of people or three or whatever. And it's like, when you look around, I mean, not only is that not true through mate choice, but look at what people choose, like gay women when they go to sperm banks. And yes, it's true that they tend to converge on some general traits, which are good pro-social traits like intelligence kindness and health. Those are the the top three things that all women choose. And even when they don't choose directly, they choose proxies for it, like SAT scores. Where'd you go to school? Did you graduate? Um, How tall are you? How good looking are you? And a lot of these are actually correlated with health and obviously intelligence. And then after that, it's like, yeah, Asians tend to choose Asians and, and, and that sort of thing. And it's like, that's fine, right? Like 
people will choose whatever aesthetics they want. And just to add one more piece to that, a lot of Americans who are looking for sperm donors go to Denmark. And yeah, I guess that's because a lot of them, I mean, Danish people are, you know, pretty good looking. Let's face it. Like if you ever walk around Scandinavia, you know, pretty nice looking population. But generally speaking, people want their own ethnic background. And I don't think, you know, the Chinese are going to go, you know, out of existence because they're all going to choose Danes. It's, there's no evidence for that. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Um, so, I mean, it's, 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 it's here now. I mean, I was talking to uh, Steve Shu on a previous podcast and he said, I think in Denmark, he said like 10% of kids are born through IVF. I don't know what percentage of them do. They all, do they all do, you think they would all do embryo selection? So they must at some level, right? They would check for diseases, I, I assume. Yeah. Um, or even right. apparently, I'm not an expert on exactly what goes on in the lab, certainly. I, in fact, I've never been in such a lab, but I do know there's some like visual inspections. They'll even look at like, literally, is it misshapen? You know, it's, which is a very oh, yeah. rough Steve, Steve has a, Steve's company does, I think, something yeah. like that. He has like a better method to, to figure oh, out. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There certainly are. The embryo. But I was going to say, even, even like everyone who does it is going to do those really basic things. And then the question is like, how much genetic testing do you do? Just monogenic, polygenic. Yeah. yeah. So we're here. And I think, you know, I, how about this? I, I sort of think we're already like, it's people can do this stuff. And it's just like, you know what, you shouldn't have this conversation. I, we should just shut our mouths because if we talk about it, people <laughs> might try to stop it. And right now, if we just let the technology yeah. and sort of regulation stay where there are, maybe, you know, people will, people will just do this stuff. Maybe, maybe we're, we're making a mistake by talking about it. Well, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a funny old utilitarian argument, right? Like Sidgwick used to say, maybe the best utilitarian is the one who gets into public office and actively condemns utilitarianism and like promotes a specific religion. Why? Because uh, people evolved to be religious. They're happier when they're religious. So even if religion is fake, like go ahead and promote it as a good utilitarian. And you might say the same thing for us. Like if you really support genetic enhancement, just shut up about it and let it happen. Um, I don't know. I, I think actually, like my view is we, we should try to speed up this technology. We should get people to, to the extent possible to support it. And I do worry that once it happens in Asia, where because we have these social norms that come from World War II, Europeans and Americans are going to try to stop it. And I'd rather get out front and at least try in principle, might not work, but try, try to persuade some people like this is coming. You should like formulate some attitudes and again, more libertarian laws about it. Like that's what I really want. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I used to believe in Asians. Yeah. I used to believe in Asians doing this stuff too. And, and Steve still does, but I look at China and I look at the, um, you know, I look at the, uh, uh, how they, they put that guy in jail for making their, and, and like, you know, it's just because they're, you know, they're yeah. into, uh, uh, you know, because they're, I guess they're listening to Western bioethics. They were just embarrassed, uh, with the West. I, I, I don't right. know. I, these societies yeah. do seem to, you know, they do seem to be, you know, subject to the same kind of uh, constraints. I I've heard that actually like genetic privacy laws in like China, if you just want to like get someone to do something, you want to take it from some like basketball player, there's some, somebody who's trying to take some athletic students and trying to get their DNA for something. And apparently it was a regulatory nightmare. It's much harder than the US where you can just, you know, send it to 23andMe. So I don't yeah. know. I mean, I don't, I don't, at least in China, I don't believe in China. <laughs> you know, I don't think they're going to do any of this stuff. No, I think it's going to be maybe Singapore it's because be they have more Singapore. Yeah, libertarian instincts, but right, 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 right. Yeah, so I think that's right. I think it's going to be like Singapore, Korea, and then when you look at the Pew research, there was a survey done just last year on attitudes toward gene editing. So it wasn't genetic selection through embryo selection, but gene editing, which is actually you know more invasive and less certain. And yet, when they pulled, um, well, pulled the whole world, and they found like very few Americans support it. Europeans are hesitant. 
a few more Asians did, but the Indians, India was above 50% in favoring using gene editing to increase intelligence, which I found really interesting. Maybe the data is bad. Maybe the surveys are bad. I don't know. But on its face, that's interesting. And I think optimistic. And it may be, again, because they don't really, they haven't absorbed the social norms that we created after World War II and then exported to the world through Hollywood and so on. Maybe Indians have absorbed those less. I'm not sure, but my view is this. I mean, you like to talk about prediction markets. I, I love CSPI, by the way, and <laughs> read your stuff and also Eric Kaufman's. But, you know, you've been writing about prediction markets. And um, as Robin Hanson likes to say, they're attacks on bullshit. The only people who enter them are people who think they have good information. You know, you're punished for just sort of, um, armchair reasoning. And I think the same thing is going to happen. The same principle of attacks on bullshit is going to happen when embryo selection is widely available. Lots of people are going to grandstand and say, oh, this is wrong. It should be like, you know, it's immoral. Um, probably it doesn't work. So first they're going to deny the science and they're going to say it's wrong anyway on ethical grounds. And then they're going to be the first in line to use it for their children. Because what's going to happen, obviously, is quickly they're going to realize, okay, this actually works. This is real. And if I don't use it, like, this is going to be a serious cost for me. Um, you know, I can spend $300,000 to try to get my kid into Yale, or I can boost their IQ by 10 points, you know, which is more effective. And it turns out, you know, the second is more effective than the first. Yeah. Yeah. You have these, you know, you have this one thing, which is people making decisions about their own lives. And then you have politics where, you know, everything just becomes, you know, stupid and the most hysterical sort of, uh, you know, tend to have an advantage and, you know, but it's, it's, you know, it's possible, you know, it's sometimes possible for the, you know, the, the hysterics to it. Now I think that we have a status quo in this country that makes it, I think, politically very hard. You like, you could never clamp down exactly. on, uh, in vitro right now. I don't think you can clamp down on the stuff that we've done so far. Um, I don't think we can. I mean, I think that the people who, uh, you know, to do this stuff are disproportionately wealthy, well-educated, the kind of people who vote, the kind of people who are involved right. in campaigns, you know, especially with uh, delayed fertility of upper class women. Um, I think yeah. to go back and regulate this stuff, put the genie back in the bottle is, is very hard. And so maybe I've talked myself into like, so it's like, if you came, if you wanted to come and regulate this stuff, it, you'd have to like say, okay, this kind of embryo selection is okay. This one is not because we're already doing embryo selection and you're going to have to say, here's the line. And the line is going to be something yep. that some people are already doing. Um, you know, I don't, and it depends on, it depends on, I guess the, um, the cost of the technology too, because I think you can have these regulations that make it more difficult, but I, some people will want to, you know, take the risk. And if it's cheaper to run a lab and to do this stuff, then, you know, you might, you might risk the government coming after you because you could just make massive, massive profits and people will pay you for it. Um, yep. So I guess, yeah, I guess there's reasons. I mean, at least in the U S I know in Europe, it's the laws are a little bit different, but in the U S I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that nothing, nothing bad will happen. So maybe, yeah, maybe so we can far, talk about this to, to our heart's content. Exactly. And so far it's pretty libertarian. It's hard to know what's going to happen. I think, you know, my, my, thought is, although I hope it doesn't materialize, but there's going to be resistance, of course, from some on the religious right. Um, you know, this is against God's will and so on. And some on, well, let's call them the religious left, the kind of wokesters. And that's because of, obviously, it, it will discard with their blank slate ideology. It'll put a price on grandstanding about blank slateism, about all individuals or groups being exactly the same and so on. You know, if we can select this, that already means, of course, there are these differences. And as you probably know, it works better for some ethnicities than others because we have better GWAS data in like the UK than we do in Somalia, obviously, for obvious reasons. 
And, you know, you can't actually use the same predictors for Somalians and um, British. And that's for obviously genetic reasons. And so there are many ways in which this will really upset um, just just the scientific foundations will upset the wokesters because their entire worldview rests on blank slateism. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they react. But. Yeah, I, I don't worry about. I think the wokesters are good at compartmentalizing because some people will yeah. say, "Oh, there's you know there's racial you know you're gonna show some genetic racial differences," and I'm like, "Don't do you think that sex differences are not proven already?" Like, right, okay, right. well, and they have no problem still being fem you know blank slate feminists. So I I think they just don't care, and yeah. not that they don't care, they're just they're 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 compartmentalizing, right? Yeah, if you tell yeah. them if they go you know if if you take the blank slate gender ideologists and you take them and they have a baby and you know the, the they say you know it's a boy and it's going to have this X risk of of this. You know they're they're, they're going to throw out the gender ideology out the window. They're going to take create it as biological biologically real. So I you know the BS. I think it's like right. you know it's like so built in, but it's like it it can be gotten around. Like you just have to sort of give people freedom, and even the worst people with the worst ideas, yeah, 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 yeah. will make good decisions when they have to be responsible for for what they decide. And I, I kind of love this because I was thinking about this the other day. One thing that these companies that do embryo selection, gene editing eventually are going to do in effect is I think there will be preference and social norm cascades. Because once you show that this is viable, that it's scientifically, uh, well, that it works, let's say, that there are even good moral reasons to do it because smarter populations tend to have less corruption, more productivity, all those things. Once that's like fairly obvious, once the arguments have been worked out, I think it's going to basically force a change. Well, you might be right that people will still compartmentalize, but my hope anyway is that maybe it'll be more more difficult to compartmentalize. And then some of their dumber views, uh, some of the some of the blank slate views will change too. But may, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because we have, like, we have in the upper classes, we have, you know, embryo selection, and we have sperm donors, and and it, it hasn't made them any less blank yeah, slightest at all. So it's like, no, it's a good they point. Can, you know, they, they can do this. Yeah, they can do this forever. And as you know, right, the people who are most likely to say intelligence tests only measure the ability to take intelligence tests, right? They're nothing. They don't matter. These are people who are, of course, academics who are obsessed with intelligence. They want smart kids. They only admit smart grad students. So. You're right. Uh, people who know things like this the most are also, in many cases, least likely to publicly say them. So I don't know. You, you yeah. could be right. And I think another. I think another thing. I think a mistake us critics of the left make is that, like, we say stuff like, "Oh, okay, they hate intelligence and they hate like." Okay, the people who are like writing like Stephen Jay Gould op eds, they're not yeah. like your average. You, you say the other professors, they want the smartest. It, those aren't the same people. I think the people who are writing Stephen Jay Gould op, op eds will say abolish the SAT. Um, you know, and then they they're, uh, they're yeah. able to push around everyone else because they're you know the the other people are just you know they're vaguely sympathetic um yeah. but that doesn't mean like all leftists or all democrats or all you know academics um doubt and in, doubt intelligence um a lot yeah. do um but it's yeah it's easy to sort of yeah i, I think there's just this, like this there's this fanatical minority um that is yeah know, a big problem for a lot of reasons good and these things change because the the far left was fanatical in the other direction just 100 years ago um, you and I, before we started, we're talking about, I mentioned George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman, the basically his eugenics novel, or he called it his Nietzsche novel. But it's, it's a play that is about the future of genetic enhancement, given, you know, he had read Galton and he'd also read Nietzsche. And 
you know, what he says in the preface is essentially I support socialism and I'm pretty lukewarm on democracy, but I think democracy could work if we could make the population smarter and nicer. We can only do that, you know, through genetic enhancement. Um, he said something like, well, it's an old children's rhyme that, you know, you can't make a, a silk purse from a sow's ear or something. And that's just a way of saying like some people just can't do things and, and we need to create capacity or we'll be ruined by democracy. And, and, you know, that was not, that was not like, um, a minority view. I mean, as you probably know, the eugenics movement in the bad sense of the word, you know, some of the early supporters of like sterilization laws in the U S mostly from the left. And that's really sort of interesting. It shows that there's no necessary reason for them to be blank slatists and they can flip on a dime. It just so happens that right now that's, that's the kind of core doctrine. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's right. So, okay. Yeah. I encourage people to read the book and I encourage yeah. people to think about this stuff. Um, just to change gears a little bit. So what are, what are you doing in Ecuador? Oh, cool. Yeah. So I left my job at Penn a year ago and I joined, well, my good friend down did you know, here. Did you know Amy Wax, by the way? She's a of friend course, of the show. Yeah. I love Amy Wax. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, she's wonderful. Right when I got to Penn, she invited me to her house for Thanksgiving and, you know, I, I've only known her a couple of years, but yeah, she's, she's fantastic. Great human being. Um, so I'm glad you had her on. That was actually a really nice podcast too. So a few weeks back. Um, yeah, so I came to Ecuador and, um, you know, partly to escape, you know, what's going on in the Ivy leagues that as you know, and, and certainly Eric Kaufman knows, um, the more elite the university is, the worse it is in terms of the ideology. So it's become just really boring, to be honest, it's really stale and boring. It's hard to say interesting things out loud. I, I don't I know. I think the, the liberal, the Northeastern yeah. liberal arts schools, you know, like Evergreen or Evergreen, all the way, I think they're worse than yeah. the Ivy League. So it's not exactly like that. Oh, yeah, could be, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, that's, that, that could be true. Could be worse than Yale. Some exceptions, yeah. but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, that's the way it is. I mean, what's what's fascinating though, and I'm sure you know this too. Um, you taught at Columbia, I guess. You're you're a postdoc there, right, at Columbia? Yeah. So yeah, I was a fellow. What, I never never taught at Columbia. Okay, got it. Well, one of the things that I quickly learned, I taught at Duke for seven years, and then Penn, I would just teach a couple classes a year because I was mostly kind of running a program. But in those classes, you know, the huge majority of students actually loved being challenged. It's really a tiny fraction. Um, that is creating these norms and reinforcing these norms, the sort of red guard. But my experience teaching was actually quite good. It's rather publishing and then having people who aren't in your classes, maybe in other departments who denounce you. So that I'm glad to be rid of. Uh, it was getting stifling. And so I came to Ecuador when uh, the president, uh, the current president, who's a kind of somewhere between conservative and libertarian, one office a year ago, and my good friend is his main advisor. So he said, come out here and we'll create some programs. We'll work with Department of Ed and some of the private universities here. So I actually created a, a PPE program, a master's program called that's philosophy, politics, economics. And my favorite part of that, one of my favorite classes that I created for that is called human nature and political philosophy. Um, and the idea here, and you and I were talking about this before, but you know, the students are going to have to learn a little bit of behavioral genetics and then some classical political philosophy because people like Plato, Rousseau, Marx, they had views of human nature that informed their views about how political society should look. And then we kind of end with this provocative question. Garrett Jones and I have a paper asking it, but many people are asking it now. Well, should we um, create political societies that are in some way consistent with incentive compatible with human nature? The answer is generally yes, of course. But or should we recreate human nature? Should we actually bend human nature to fit our ideals? And, 
you know, I think in principle, a socialist could say that. They could say like, you know, Gary Cohen, we're not good enough for socialism, but we could be. So maybe we should, you know, alter human nature. So anyway, that's one of the classes that I created. It could be fun to teach. Yeah, that does that does sound that does sound like fun. You know, I think that there's you know the, this idea about creating humans that would be better for this system or that. I just think that when we think about this stuff, the low hanging fruit, like imagine we improve the IQ, you know average IQ by twenty points, we get yep. rid of the worst diseases, right? We just do yep. that. We're yep. going to be so smart. Society is going to function so much better that like. Okay whether we're democracy or a better democracy, I think that like the gains, like the economic gains and, and the sort of the social gains of that are just going to be so huge that like everything else we can sort of, we can think about it at that point. Like there's, there's just low hanging fruit to just make us so much better. And like, we'll be much smarter by then and much able, better able to figure that out. I, you know, I don't see any reason to, to get a, to get ahead of ourselves. You know, I think there's a lot of good we could do. That's unquestionably good in the meantime. I, and I'll, I agree, all without yeah. forcing people. Yeah, I agree. And in this case, like like that closing question, you know, it's a provocative question. Should we change humans to fit our ideals? I mean, first of all, like there's no there's no overall we like somehow some dictator is just going to change humans by genetically altering all of them. But it's more of kind of a provocative question in the sense that for the first time, we can at least see a path to like, if not deliberate change, at least like on, you know, an overall timescale, you know, slow change towards something that looks more like what, um, I don't know, some socialist desire or something like nicer people, smarter people, whatever it is. So I don't actually like endorse like, you know, some dictator massively changing human nature or something like that. But Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's just cool. I mean, I think it's cool. Like having that variation is just cool. Like you go to high school, you have like the jocks the nerds, you have the weirdos, you have, you know, this and that. And I think we're just going to get that like supercharged. I think it'll be, you know, I think it'll be really cool. I agree. (laughs) Although there's one area of disagreement we might have, which is like, I I don't know about you. I'm not a big proponent of egalitarianism, depending on what theory of equality we're talking about. But like a lot of people worry about genetic inequalities. And I guess I do to some extent in the sense that some people for religious reasons or otherwise are going to opt out of this game. And it's true, there's going to be a higher and higher price to pay because the opportunity cost of declining to use these these things will go up. But at some point, you know, we may basically do the equivalent of speciating where we can still interbreed, but we're so different from each other that there's no like mutually beneficial terms of cooperation. And if do that happens, do you think we might? Yeah. We have, we have, uh, we have, um, uh, you know, these uh, uh, sort of mating now. Aren't we there? Yeah. I mean, I think we're sort of there. I mean, you take the people who are, you know, a PhD program yeah. and, you know, biochemistry, yeah. you take them to, you know, the, yeah. the worst of the American inner city. Do, the, do those people, can those people form it? No, they're completely yeah. segregated. They have nothing. To yeah, do it's up, true. So. Look, that's absolutely true. It's politically incorrect, but obviously true. And we have good data on it, right? So assortative mating is getting stronger, not weaker. Um, and this is going to be like assortative mating. Uh, you know, ramped up just a bit. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the question, what you do, like, you have these religious communities and these <laughs> religious communities, I mean, uh, Kaufman, I mean, has written about this, you know, they're, they're yep. growing fast. They've, they've held on to their religion for, you know, hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years. Um, and they're not going to, you know, overnight just say, oh, it's in my best interest now to do X. So I'm going to, there's going to be some of them. And, you know, the question is, what do you, what do you do with them? And if it's, you know, if it's their choice and they're like, I can't think about, but, uh, you know, in the, every other possibility, stop everyone else from improving themselves. No, we can't do that and then coerce them like go to war with them because of what they want to do to their own children that's also uh immoral um so i I agree it could be something worth worrying about but you know i I don't see any solution that's potentially good here 
Yeah, and it's also worth pointing out. I mean, we've seen this, you know, uh, with the Catholic Church and many other churches around the world. Actually, with Islam, various factions of Islam now in the Middle East, you know, churches, even though they used to have a kind of monopoly, right? They used to basically be the government or the organizing force of the tribe, so to speak. But now, in many ways, they change in response to the, the social norms that arise from the secular government or from just like subsections of the population. And in that sense, we could expect, I mean, I think, religious norms to evolve and to some extent track what's already going on in the population. And again, the higher the cost is to opting out of this, the more people are going to do it and then the religions are going to have to change or people opt for a new religion. So I'm a huge fan of religion. I like Eric Kaufman's book. I think he's right. The religious shall inherit the earth. Religious in some form, even even the wokesters, I think, are a kind of religion. And, you know, that's a stable strategy in some ways. Um, but that doesn't mean they're stagnant. So like Mormons, I also love Mormons. They're pro-natalist. They're great. They're great people. They create wonderful societies. And um, I think they too will adapt. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And having those naturals will be the, you know, so like, it's, I don't, you know, some people will, like, I, I think uh, most Jewish communities are, you know, are okay with genetic testing and they're, they're, they're okay with this stuff. So you have some people like the Amish, which like, they'll, adjust, they don't have, I mean, they've, they've not adjusted to society for hundreds of years and they're, they're fine. Yeah. They, their GDP per capita is not as high as everyone else. And, uh, you know, I, I think they don't, they don't care. Um, so I think they can, you yeah. know, continue doing what they're, but look, we'll be such a wealthy and happy society. It's like, you know, we can, we can tolerate the Amish. That, that's fine. I mean, you yeah. know, that's, uh, we could, we could, we could tolerate, um, you know, we could we could tolerate a lot. I, I think that, um, and who knows? You know, we wish it's it's good if you want that. If you're interested in preserving diversity, like having these natural communities that are doing their own thing, yeah. um, is potentially also uh, a benefit, yeah. right? Natural gene pool, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah. You have the naturals and the synthetics reservoirs. And the, yeah, the synthetics uh, yeah. and the naturals. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the, um, so the, yeah, the PPE thing is interesting. I have not, you know, I, I did not come across this when I was in academia. I mean, I was in a political science department. Um, yeah. How big is, I mean, how big is this? Because it seems like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm intrigued by the idea that like, uh, so when we, would we talk political science, we would start by teaching some game theory, right? Some ideas from yeah. uh, economics. And that was, you know, natural because it, you know, it helps to understand politics and how uh, government works and what government is for. You know, we have like uh, somebody teaches, like we have a philosophy class, like within the political, but it's like, it's not, it wasn't incorporated to like when I taught American politics. Um, yeah. But it seems to me you need you know, to understand stuff. You, you can't just have one of these things at the expense of that. You have to know something about politics. You have to know something about economics. You have to know something about philosophy or at least like, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, be clear about, you know, your sort of uh, your priors and your, you know, your, uh, the, the assumptions that you bring to any discussion or like where you disagree with other yep. people. Um, exactly. So I, I like the idea of combining these things. Like, you know, how, how common is this? Do people get PhDs in this? Like, you know, can you just tell me about PPE? Yeah. Good. So, I mean, it, it started in Oxford 100 years ago, and it really didn't make its way to America in its current form until uh, 30 to 40 years ago. And the origin is basically Jeffrey Brennan, who just died two weeks ago in Australia. He was an economist, but he was really interested, along with James Buchanan, who won the Nobel Prize. His, his main co-author wrote The Calculus of Consent. I'm sure you read that in grad school. Um, their main interest is sort of modeling, like, yeah, why are constitutions created? Like, why... What kinds of um, game theoretic problems do they solve? And that is like, you know, shifting coalitions of minorities that temporarily become majorities to extract resources and so on. And really, that's sort of an apt use of game theory. But then there's this, yeah, there are normative questions at the end of the day. 
you know, there are these trade-offs and, you know, we have to make a moral decision about which ones we're willing to put up with, you know, what the optimal trade-off is given certain commitments. And so why not just make those explicit? So like, are you a consequentialist or a deontologist? What version of consequentialism? You know, is pleasure the only thing that matters that's valuable or are there some other values that matter um, that are better than pleasure? Obviously, people like Mill and Plato and others have talked about that. So yeah, the, the new version of PPE is really, really quite young in Oxford. You know, I was disappointed. I, I helped co-author or co-edit a textbook of like a sort of anthology with introductions when I was at Duke. And, and it really spread in the United States quickly. And I brought it to Oxford when I was writing my book. And a number of my friends teach PPE there. And I was like, hey, check this out. It's Oxford Press. Like, this is kind of our vision of how this works. A little game theory, a little political. And he was like, yeah, that's, that's not really going to work here. Um, you know, because everything's just very traditional. So in Oxford, you can get a PPE degree by doing the following. Study Aristotle for three years and then take a microeconomics class. Don't integrate them at all. That's PPE. But in the United States, what we've done is you basically have to take, you're forced to take game theory, ethics, political philosophy, political theory, and then also typically calculus, a little, little bit of math. Yeah. So for example, in a capstone class, we might apply uh, PPE sort of principles to a topic like what's the role of cost benefit analysis in public policy? Like what kinds of moral principles do you build into cost benefit analysis? Um, how do we use insights from game theory, like experimental game theory, public goods, and so on, to try to inform the way that we design institutions. And those could be, you know, small scale institutions like nonprofits or government institutions and so on. So we really emphasize not only theoretical game theory, but evolutionary and experimental game theory, where you get actual results eliciting like the the kinds of motivations people have to contribute to public goods, to free ride or to um, hold back because they think other offers are unfair and so on. So I think that's PP at its best. Um, it is. That's like the only optimistic thing I see in some American universities is that is getting more popular. The problem is, um, I noticed this, and I'll say this to you for the first time, it might get me in trouble, but often what's happening is um, these PPU programs are very popular. The one at Duke that, that I started was really, really popular, one of the most popular classes there. At Penn, it's extremely popular, but what happens is they get co-opted by, by leftists in many cases who are not as interested in teaching in a neutral way. So they see economics as somehow like right-wing and oppressive, and you know they'll emphasize a lot more of the kind of like you know, victimhood games of modern philosophy. Like they'll talk like just exclusively about stereotypes and all this kind of crap. So it's really unfortunate, like, but I guess that's inevitable that even good programs with interesting ideas will get co-opted. So, Yeah, it seems like you guys who are doing, you know, things who've been doing things in academia, it seems like you're always just... You know, you're always just... You could make these arguments and you can even become well-regarded. and But it's like... You're always yeah. on the defensive. You're always outnumbered in some bureaucratic game. And anything you do or anything you have or anything you build, um, you know, these are activists. I mean, these are activists who are, you know, uh, under the guise of, of scholars, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, the scholars, you know, can't beat the activists. I mean, the activists will win because you just have arguments yeah. and they have, you know, they have organization and, and, and seeking power. And that's just unfortunate from the, uh, you know, that's just an unfortunate aspect of the modern university. Yeah. And a twist on that is, well, I am leaving academia. I'm technically in an academic position this year, but I'm, I'm making my way out of it. And the last really academic talk I gave was at the University of Colorado at the you know, the Benson Center, right? The right wing center of Colorado. 
Benson Center for Western Civilization. It was informed by Eric Kaufman's data in his report, Academic Freedom in Crisis, which you helped commission. And it's called Conformity in the Cathedral, Causes and Consequences of Groupthink in the American Academy. And basically, it's a game theoretical analysis of like where we get knowledge and how we get knowledge. And the idea is once you hit a threshold of extreme conformity, it happens to be on the left right now, it probably would just be just as bad if it was on the right. You, you know, you basically don't, you're not a kind of factory for knowledge production anymore, right? And so I think that's just the, we have to face that. Like you are like one of the people I admire because you've built something on your own. I think it's easier said than done though. It's really hard to do, I'm sure, um, you know, to get donations and do whatever you want to do. But but I think the future, unfortunately, is going to be outside of the American Academy for obvious game theoretic reasons, for exactly the reasons you specified. So yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. And what I always, you know, what I always harp on, and what I always tell people is, you know, there's a world out there outside of the academy. I mean, there there is a market for smart analysis. I mean, with you know Twitter and Substack and and finding donors. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you know, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but, you know, finding an academic job also, even taking out the politics of it, you know, is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, and especially people who are, you know, sort of right-leaning, moderate, you know, whatever, heterodox, I hate that, I hate that word, but, you know, yeah, free thinking, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> you know, th- there's not like, it's not like, um, it's not like there's a surplus of brains out there, you know, especially, especially on the right, especially the public intellect. I think I, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people on the right who are considered public intellectuals, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, you know, I don't generally attack them, you know, by name, but I'm just, I'm not impressed. Um, And I think a lot of smart people who are right wing or moderate or center right, um, who are doing, who are in academia uh, could, you know, could have a, a great audience uh, outside of academia, if you're smart enough to make it in academia, you could put that brain power and that work ethic, and you can you can often make it outside of it. So yeah, that's what that's what I always encourage people to do. I always encourage people to just you know understand that you know take take the leap into the unknown because it, it, you know it it can end up being better for you. Yeah, it's optimistic view, and I think I think that's right at least for certain people. So yeah. So Johnny, uh, can people? Uh, is it? Do you have a Substack, a Twitter, a um, uh, I don't know, a blog? Anything people can follow you? Yeah, I deliberately stay off of social media. I know it's a great way to you know spread the word and get things out, but I stay off it. I'm pretty private in that way. Um, however, you know, you can just go to my website. It comes up, you know, number one on Google. So obviously, all my papers and stuff are there. Um, so yeah, you can just Google is me. That, is that you, is that you surfing on the? Is that you surfing on the on the website? It depends which one. My old Google site is yes at Black's Beach in San Diego. The new one, no, that's a generic uh, photo of a wave that I love in Tasmania. It is a freakish oh, okay. wave so John, called the Rake. Yeah, <laughs> Jonathan Dash Anomaly. That's that, that's uh, that's not you. Jonathan Dash Anomaly dot com. Yeah, you can find my Proton Mail email addresses on there. So yeah, happy to okay. talk about any of this stuff. I love talking okay. about like these topics in particular. So anyone can feel free to yeah, reach yeah. out. Yeah, but that's not that's not you. I'm disappointed. That's a pretty cool way. Oh. I, <laughs> yeah. I thought there was. I'll put a picture for this uh, podcast, but since it's not you, we'll have to. We'll have yeah, to there's else. there's really great waves in the Galapagos, and so maybe I'll get someone to get a photo or something there. So yeah, put that on the picker. Are, are you, uh, so you said you, you you said you're pretty much out, out of academia. Are, are you gonna still write things? I mean, do you have a book or an article or something you plan on? Absolutely. On, yeah, uh, I have a bunch. A bunch of articles soon? coming out. I have a bunch of articles coming out now and um, 
One of them, I think my favorite one is, you know, it's already done. It'll be published in a year with Cambridge University Press. And that is called Can Liberal, sorry, Can Liberalism Last? Demographic Demise Mm. in the Future of Liberalism. And um, the answer is no. (laughs) So the short answer is this is is a it's a provocative argument. um, But the idea is that liberalism may be evolutionarily unstable, again, in the game theoretic sense. This is not an argument from my hopes, um, but it is an argument for, it's a, it's kind of Schumpeter argument. Remember, Schumpeter actually supports capitalism and democracy, but in his book sort of starts off with the famous paragraph, like, does capitalism make us rich? Yes. Will it fail? Yes. You know, will socialism prevail? Yes. And this is not him sort of advocating for socialism. He was just giving his own analysis. So. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the most interesting provocative paper. And we're, uh, my co-author and I, Felipe Faria in Portugal, we also have a paper we just finished called, um, let's see here, Enlightened Tribalism. That's the tentative name. But we're trying to defend um, a view in which tribalism is not necessarily bad against liberal cosmopolitanism. So very provocative. Interesting. Yeah, on that on that on that first idea that there's um, that liberalism is, you know, I, I think that my view is I thought liberalism was sort of in trouble until recently, and my last yeah. year my opinions has really shifted on this, and I think it's um, I might write an article about this. It might even be out by the time this podcast is up, but maybe maybe not. Um, cool. Yeah. You know, I think that so like the you know the the um, the alternative China. They, they look at look at the COVID look at the COVID response. They're, they're, they've destroyed their economic growth. They they have they obviously yep. have some deep pathologies, which I thought was a system that was you know stable and, and rising. Uh, Russia, you know, obviously has some pathologies and starts this war, but yep. then it doesn't even fight it well. So it's like you know there's there's problems there. Um, and so my inclination, and maybe you know you could respond to this because obviously you, you must have thought a lot about this, is that like okay like. It's like, okay, if you have like this model where it's like, you know, you have this cooperator and you have this cheater, like, okay, liberal democracy gets taken advantage of whatever, but it's like its strengths, like its capitalism is like so high. Like you can be like, if you're like, a, if you build so much wealth, you're like a billionaire, like if somebody robs you, right? It's like, it's not a big deal. That, that's, you can afford you're, it. You're yeah. still successful. You could afford so I, That's the way I look at the United States. I mean, I think it could, it could be taken advantage of, it could lose in this, yeah. it could have this flaw, but I mean, I think it's just, it's strengths relative to... You know, any alternative right now is just so extreme that that stuff doesn't even matter. I think in a way that's right, um, but I, I'd put a twist on that. So maybe I'll interact. I'll leave some comments on your Substack post. I'll be interested in that. Um, my view is it's going to turn more. So nationalism and, and religiosity or religion, let's say, those are like two really powerful forces. It could be ethno-nationalism, cultural nationalism, various versions of it. But I think that liberalism isn't just going to go away. Like uh, it's clear that markets produce wealth and we don't know how else to do that. And there are huge gains from international trade in goods, if not people, actually there are gains from people as well. But we think that that's the weak spot in liberalism. So you get sort of multicultural fractioning and factionalism. And so I think like probably something a little bit like Hungary is the future. Is that anti-liberal? Actually, no, it's not actually it's got elements of liberalism in there, but it's also got strong nationalism. Um, you know, they're skeptical of immigration. So I think that's like more stable or something like Singapore, South Korea. Um, so are those liberal? Well, they have to, they have elements of them, but they also have elements of nationalism. Um, and I think that's a more stable strategy. But yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I, 
you know, I yeah. guess we'll read your. Do you have, do you have a draft? Maybe you can send it to me. I can I can read it. To oh yeah, it. definitely. And that's number one on the on the website. It's so you can you can check it out. But I'll I'll send it your way. So yeah. Okay. Well, we'll include a link. Yeah, I, Hungary is the future. I I, I don't think it is. You know, I think yeah. I think if 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 Orban, if Orban had never existed, Hungary would probably just look like its neighbors. And like I think its yeah. neighbors like wouldn't be like Hungary. You know, I I think that yeah, I, I doubt it. It'll be interesting. Ukraine is going to emerge out of this with a lot of prestige and maybe not a very liberal society. And True. you know, you know who knows? I, I I do think there's um, yeah, and you know, with the difference between Orban. And, you know, was Orban a, even a conservative compared to the West like 20, 30 years ago? So, you know, I think that people exaggerate sort of the, uh, you know, the, oh, the end of democracy, Orban is so but there, I don't think it's. Yeah, but there are two yeah, things. Yeah. I'll just end with that on this paper. Two things that he emphasizes, Orban, that we think are the weaknesses of liberalism. A, birth rates and B, religious identity. So um, some form of identity, I think, is going to be emphasized in the future. Whether it's the kind of thing we see in the U.S. where people are more and more voting in favor of their own whatever group identity or some other like overall like ethno-nationalism. Again, I don't think that's going to take over the world, but I think there will be more emphasis on that. And then pronatalism, just because the West is like dying of low birth rates, more or less. But, well, I mean, yeah, but it's no. not like Orban has solved that. I mean, Sweden and France, no. you know, have no. higher birth rates than, than he does. So, yeah. No, it's could, had a modest effect, but not much. I, I do agree yeah. with that. So, yeah, we'll see. And then you look we'll at, see. Yeah. So. Okay. This is this is interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, man, you're you're a man of many ideas and many interesting ideas. And, uh, yeah, we will, uh, we will we will keep up with them all. So, thanks a lot, Johnny. It's been great having you on. Thanks so much. Absolute pleasure being on this. So, yeah, we'll talk to you soon.